And yet sometimes we find people in our lives who have the faith to rest in every circumstance. And we look at them and we think, why can't I have that? The answer is we do have that. We do have that peace. The problem is not that it's not ours. The problem is that we're not looking at it. Now keep in mind this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy is written to the elder of the church of Ephesus, the gatherings of Ephesus, Elder Elder Timothy here, overseeing these gatherings and installing other men to be elders to put in order that which remains in in, in in, in the city there. And so the letter in and of itself is written to the pastors of the church, uh, to a particular pastor who then will teach other pastors, as we'll see in 2 Timothy, entrust this good deposit, this teaching, this understanding, rightly divide the word of truth, preach it in season, out season, for the word of God is sufficient to make the man of God successful in all things. For the word of God is the breath of God breathed out and spoken by God. The scripture is written for the people of God and written to the people of God. And this letter, when we see these instructions, when we see this realization, this reminder of the peace of Christ that comes from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, we are not looking at this letter from a position of evangelism. We're not looking, Paul did not write this letter that one may come to see the faith. He wrote this letter to those who are in the faith. We do not need to conflate. What does that mean? We do not take two terms or two ideas or two separate things and try to merge them into one. We don't need to find an overlap. We don't need to confuse, if you will, the understanding of maturing in the faith and being in the faith. Because not everyone matures in the faith who is in the faith. Some people do not mature in the faith as others mature in the faith. And so it's easy for us to see the mature person who, in the circumstance that would cause us great grief, who says, it's okay, the Lord has it. His hand is at work and I'm at peace. When we would go home and pull out our eyes. Why can't I have? And then we would add to that angst, right? Why can't I have that kind of faith? Now I've got the problem and faithlessness. Wow! You know, that is the whole essence of it. It's discontentment. It's wanting what we don't have in the way of covetousness. See, covetousness is not always about, I wish I had the better car or the better suit or the better house or the, or, or the bigger bank account. I mean, few Christians, when they've matured to a certain level, look at their neighbor and wish they had what their neighbor had. Most Christians wish they could be what someone else was. And in being so, and in having that mindset, they want to, we want to, at times tear ourselves apart as though we're not even in the faith. And this is the lie of the devil. From the very beginning, he will say, did God really say that your peace is from Christ alone? Does the word of God, does God say that the gospel, the good report of the one who is set apart, anointed of God to save his people from their sins by substituting himself for them, And the righteousness of God being upheld and fulfilled in justice. How? By the wrath of God. Is enough. See, it fights against the natural inclination of our bodies and our minds to let that be effectual. And if God is sovereign, we read out of Isaiah 46 this morning before we sang, And that is one of those places where God says he will put salvation in Zion. 
God will cause it. His counsel will stand. No one will stay his hand. No one will change his outcomes. And God is not just a God of power, of all power, but in all his power, as I said earlier, he is always purposeful. And that purpose is to show himself for who he really is. The word for that is to is glorify, to see who he really is. And who God really is, is someone, something, a being, that never began, and who is the highest of all things, above all things. That's what the word God means. The word God is not his name. It means above and highest of all things. So there is no God but the one and only God. And because he is the highest above all things, because he is set apart beyond all things, he is not like in any way, he is not like anything but himself. And that's what God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46. You try to compare me to things? You try to make me like something else that you could call this like me? Isn't that the lie of the enemy in the garden? In Genesis chapter 3, did God really say you would die? You know? Is that really what God said? See, God knows something. If you eat of this fruit, oh, you're going to be like him. So then the, 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 the idea of being like God is pretty amazing, right? It's pretty amazing. The idea of knowing something that God knows that maybe someone else doesn't is pretty amazing. Oh, you're talking about hubris. Beloved, when you have information that someone else may not have, you have power. That's why spies are powerful, right? That's why heads of state are powerful. Imagine being inaugurated as a president and then the very next day sitting in the debriefing and learning all the nasty noise and all the evil things under the rug and hidden in the closets. That's why they age overnight, I swear. And then they're gray-headed the next day. 35, 65, just one day because of the stress of it all. But imagine, that knowledge is, is something that man desires. Well, beloved, the knowledge of God is He revealing Himself to His people. Not figuring Him out in our own wisdom. As a matter of fact, Paul would say to the Corinthians, who were known as a Greek people, who were known as wise people, who were known as extremely intelligent. As a matter of fact, for fun, they didn't go to the movies. They didn't go to sporting events. They went to hear a person speak about philosophy and smart things. And children would sit and listen to someone opine about what is life. What is, is. Je pense donc je suis. All throughout the world, in every segment of human history, there is someone who is thinking in a greater way than someone else is thinking. And in that thinking, there is power among men. But God... The Lord, the creator of it all, he sits far above all these things. As a father, there have been many times in my life where my children have told me what they were going to do. And I just smile. And somewhat maniacally laugh. <laughs> you think so. You know, why? I'm not worried about what they dictate to me. And they can say all they want to say. Just keep talking. Add up the stripes. You know. Add it up. There's nothing you can do because I am the dad. 
You see? And children, you know what I'm talking about. Y'all tested those waters. I'm not going to bed. Okay. That's fine. I will not eat it. I am going to the moon. Sooner than you think. And that's what we do with God. We, we take and we tell God what we are and what we're going to do. And we stand and say, this is what I know. You are God. And we tell God who He is. And we think that that's going to bring us peace. By commanding the, the, the Father. When God is above it all. What's the word for separate from all things? What's the word for that? The word is holy. And see, with holy comes a whole lot of understanding as we grow and mature in our reading of the Scripture. We don't just wake up and we understand everybody who's in America church in any cult or iteration, it doesn't matter who they are, if they're in a Christian cult whatsoever and have the Bible in any form as a part of their liturgy, they understand the word holy applies to God. But they don't understand what it means. God is apart from all things. That's what it means. So he's not like the creation. He created it. He's not like man. Man is his creation. Henry Ford was not a car. He created the car. God is not a snake. He's not like a snake. He's not like a tree. Does this sound familiar for some of us who have gone to college? God is in all things. No, God is above all things. There's a big difference. And then the scripture would say that those who are in Christ, Christ is in them. Now there's an incredible reality. But everybody knows what holy means. But if God is above all things and apart from all things and separate from all things because He created all things, then that means that everything He is is completely different than everything He's made. Even though everything He's made, as we went through those 17, 18 weeks in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, everything He's made in some way will show something about Him. The things that He has made does not reveal Him fully, does not show His glory in its fullness. What shows the glory of God in all that He is? What reveals Him perfectly? His Son, Jesus, the Christ. What does the Christ mean? It's the English word of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek word of the Hebrew word Meshach, which translated into English means Messiah, is Messiah, which means the one who is set apart from God. The one who comes from God, who is set apart. So here, the essence of God becomes human and is still God. And in that human God-man, we can see all that God ever will ever want to or will reveal to us. Everything that makes Him separate and awesome and majestic and glorious is seen in Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle um, John and his writing. This is the Apostle Paul and his writing to the Colossians and to the Hebrews. All the fullness of God dwelled bodily. We have seen the glory of God in the Son of God. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God who is at the God's side has made God known. 
And so when we see Christ, what does Christ say? What is the message? What is the report that Christ, that Jesus, the one who is set apart and anointed from God, that's what Christ means, Messiah means, what is the report that Christ comes to preach? He comes to preach peace. I mean, this is the centerpiece of his preaching. He comes to preach peace. I mean, before his baptism and wilderness experience, we see in the Gospels where he goes into the tabernacle and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from the scroll about the day of Jubilee and the day of celebration and the day of thanksgiving and the time when God would restore joy to his people by giving them peace in their land and in their hearts and in their souls. And the scripture says in all the accounts that the people were in awe and they loved him. Why did they love him? Because he gave them good news. And in their heart of hearts, they thought, and we know this by reading the scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we understand what the prophets and the apostles agree. And we know that the people of God in that day, in the day of Christ, when he came preaching, they had one understanding of peace and that was we got to get Rome out of our hair it wasn't we are sinners before our father as a matter of fact they in their own minds were not sinners before the father because most of the religious of that day followed the precepts of Moses very according to their own standard as Paul would confess perfectly they did the right things yet that did not bring peace with God I mean, think about it for a second. What's peaceful about the liturgy of sacrifice? I mean, we can come here and we can pray. We can sing music that teaches us about Christ. We can worship together through the hearing of the word and the reading of the word and the preaching, the exposition of the word. We can learn by being told what we should do now because of Scripture. And and we can go and minister to one another, meeting needs in every situation as we're able and we can leave here and we can feel, let me, let me emphasize this where we can feel at peace a lot of times, can't we? Oh, that was such a peaceful service. That was such a peaceful message. That was such a peaceful time. I really am at peace with that truth. And that's, what it was, that's what part of what it's for. I've always shuddered when I get through with the preaching Especially as a visiting pastor. You know, I haven't done that in a long time because of the pandemic. But where I used to visit other congregations by appointment or invitation or visit conferences or whatever and teach. And it always made me sort of shudder. At the end of the teaching, someone would come up to me and go, oh, you really kicked me in the gut that, this time. You stomped all over me. And the first thing that I think is that I missed the gospel. The word of God stomps all over sometimes, doesn't it? It steps on our toes, as we say in our culture. It does bring conviction of sin, but that's not the point of the gospel. The gospel is not to bring conviction of sin. The gospel is to bring peace. The gospel is a message and a report of God making peace with himself. Because God is holy, that means he's apart and separate. That means the scripture teaches that because he is not like creatures, that he and all that he does is a display of goodness and righteousness and perfection and so that what God demands of us when we are not that we are evil and this is an unpopular teaching 
It's an unpopular truth found in Scripture. Don't tell people that they're evil. Okay. But why not? Because when God saves us, it might not be that moment, but it's a soon thereafter, we will see that we are not God. And we will see that we are not Christ. And we will see that the peace of self-made religion and the peace of striving and the peace that comes from obedience is no peace at all. Because, beloved, when it comes to standing before the holy, righteous judge of the cosmos, there is nothing that we bring but guilt. And worship in the first century and before with Israel was not a peaceful celebration. Yes, they sang. Yes, they had meals. But every one of those meals focused on the blood of something and the death of something and the body of something being burned and destroyed as an appeasement to God. As an appeasement to God. So the Christian faith, while it is a faith of peace, began its days according to the truth of God's revelation as a religion of death. Because God, as he teaches us in the Old Testament, to teach his people to sacrifice things that are perfect and pure, to give up things that they actually need in order for them to understand the cost, something of value. And that thing must be bled out alive, and then the blood must be poured over the, what? The mercy seat, where God meets man. And the body of that creature must be burned and then part of it consumed. I mean, that's not a peaceful situation. I learned to cut meat when I was 13 years old. Butcher animals. And I enjoyed it. It's, it's, there's an art to it. And I was trained by an extremely talented person. But at the end of the day, when that meat room was done after a 10-hour shift, it was nasty. It was bloody. It was terrible. It was an awful place. It smelled to the person who wasn't used to the smell. Even though it was like 45 degrees in there, it was awful. And then you would start to clean with 150-degree water and bleach. You look like, you know, E.T. or something like that. You know, you're going in there with all these covers and things because it's a nasty place. And that's called a sterile environment, according to the FDA. There was no sterile environment in the temple, yet it was sterile, <laughs> according to the law. It was not a time of peace. Hey, kids, let's go to church. Bring Lambie. I mean, can you imagine? I remember back in my youth when some family decided to get together and go in and, har uh, not harvest, but be rabbit farmers. We started out with five, and a couple of days we had 30, and, you know, two or three times after midnight, they turned to monsters, and all sorts of things happened. And, but we named them and loved them and petted them, and when they got big enough, we ate them. That was horrifying. This is brownie. Yeah, he's going to look good in the stew. That's not peaceful. Shut up and eat your pet. Or go to bed hungry. That's not peaceful. Imagine worshiping. Teaching your children that God demands death. 
Because he does. Why? Because he's holy. And his righteousness, the law, according to his righteousness, says that when one sins, he must die. Mercy cannot be good if it doesn't satisfy that. The gospel is the report of peace. God making peace with his people. But most importantly, God making peace with himself. Let me make that a little bit clearer. For himself. I could argue either way, but for himself is a little more clearer. The idea of propitiation, to satisfy wrath. God is propitiating himself in the death of Jesus. God is satisfying his own justice in the death of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when we see the text, and if you are a, you know, a language geek or, or what have you, when you look at, at some of the writings of the New Testament, and you see Jesus talking about the publican and the Pharisee in that story, about how the Pharisee praised God that he was not like other men, and praised God that God himself had caused him to be such a pious worshiper. And the publican, the tax collector who robbed his own mother in order to buy his goods, uh, was convicted of his guilt by the Spirit of God and went off far away. He didn't come into the area of worship. He was unworthy to be in the presence of God. And he tore his clothes and he would not even look to heaven, which was the posture of prayer, eyes open, hands up, praying like this. It was a spectacle, you know. Now it's like this. Depends on the culture. It's no biblical way of doing it. But he didn't want to look to heaven, yet he beat his chest and he said, Oh, God! And what he actually says is, propitiate for me. Satisfy your wrath for me. What does that show us? That the only way to peace is for God himself to make peace. Because there's no way to make peace once the offense has come. And as we've already seen, God intended in His purposes. Listen to what I'm saying. God intended in His purposes that man would fall. That He would be revealed as a Savior of His people. And Adam and Eve of their own desire sinned against God. Yet it was the plan of God. It wasn't plan B. For Christ, it was the point that God created the world to begin with. And so we have peace from God the Father, from Jesus Christ our Lord. And this peace, beloved, I believe is is something that that we don't understand. I just don't think it's why I want to spend more weeks on it. We can get our theology clear. We can get our language clear. We can put all sorts of technical analysis on the text and, and, and come out with all sorts of systematized ways of expressing ourselves, which is what we do. It's, what, it's the only way we know how to communicate. Nothing wrong with it. It's how God has ordained our communication. But we all say peace, but we don't get it. And if we were to take a poll today, many of us don't have it. We may be at peace with God in the gospel, but we're not resting in that. We're not at rest at all. We're in turmoil. Well, 2021 was worse than 2020 in the context of turmoil for me. And I've spent half the year with no peace of mind, with no peace of body, 
with no piece of handle of things, what's the word, <laughs> of having a handle on things, no piece of knowing what I should do, that's wisdom, no peace at all, except fleeting moments when I focus on the word of God by his call and command because I have to encourage you in the peace that the scripture teaches even when I don't have it myself. Isn't that crazy? And so if I have experienced these things, this roller coaster of nightmares, then many of you have probably experienced it. And it's not about transforming your life in such a way that everything is at peace. It's about understanding the one who is our peace. And beloved, there's a lot to be said. And as I said last week, when we get down to the nitty-gritty of why the letter has been written, it's been written so that we can see some really bad things that have been taking place in the church. And um, I'll be honest with you. If you're not holding fast to the peace of Christ, the instructions of the Bible upset you. The teachings of the apostles on what we should do and how we should respond are going to upset us because then we're going to have fear and anxiety. Then we're going to have frustration. Then we're going to have self-sufficiency. And beloved, the pulpit is for instruction. It's for correction. It's for application. The pulpit is for us as a family to have a little meeting every week to celebrate the gospel of peace and to worship the God of peace and then to live out that peace through much pain and suffering. And I promise you, there is nothing that I can do nor you can do in all of our wisdom that can accomplish what God can do in an instant with His, with his Spirit and with his word, through his word. And we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have peace within. So next week, I want to really talk about our assurance. Because I think that's the second portion of what this peace is, the peace of peace that's missing from most of our hearts is assurance. The old cliche, and it makes me gag, but the, the fact that you can know that you have been born again. That you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. You know that old... You know that old adage, right? It's not even an adage. It's, it's a byline. And it usually comes before a false gospel. Do you want to know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? Look at Christ. Hear the peace that comes. That's beyond all understanding, as Paul would teach the Philippians. And because we have peace with God, we have we can have peace within and our assurance. We can rest in the knowledge of God's work for us. We can also have peace with our fellow brothers and sisters. And we can strive for peace in our fellow man, with fellow man, with the government. But most importantly, we have peace and rest, faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How is it? That's a way of reminder that the burden of Christ is light because when we are sitting in his hands, he has already taken the burden of wrath. He substituted himself for his people. And their sins are atoned for. Now the word atone 
is an English word. And it's come throughout the centuries from several different ideas. And the idea of atonement is that here is God, high and above all things, and here are we, lost, dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies with God, haters of righteousness, self-righteous, haughty, full of strife and malice and murder and envy and lust and disease and wretchedness, you know. We are not like Him. Not only are we not like Him, He cannot be with us, nor can He look upon us. And so this is the reality here of the division between God and humanity. And so for God to reach down into the cesspool of darkness and say, oh, look, I'm going to bring this into the light, would expose Him as a liar and would drag the disease of wickedness and sinfulness into his presence, and then as he reached into darkness and embraced wickedness, he himself would become wicked and no longer be holy, no longer be God, and so on and so forth. Beloved, he couldn't do that, so what did he do? He substituted himself in place of his people. Substituted himself. And where we were separated, then Christ brought us together and now we are at one with God. And that idea in English, at one, became atone, to be brought together at one. So your third grade theology, you can understand atonement as at one meant. Peace has been brought near. And peace has been put in. Our status as guilty people has not changed in its reality. But our status as saints now forgiven. Now we share the righteousness that is not our own. But it's an alien righteousness. The perfection of God himself in his humanity has been credited to us. And our guilt has been credited to Christ. I remember the first time I thought, oh, this great exchange. I'm like, I'm going to write a book about that. Already been done. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no new way of expressing the same message that never changes about the same God who eternally has never changed about the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was sent by the Father to bring peace and to effect peace for His people once and for all. And so, beloved... We've got to rest in this. Paul would teach the Philippians in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord. I believe that being settled with a true faith that is maturing and at rest is what brings out true rejoicing. That as a shepherd, one of my greatest calls is to watch over the people. And one of the greatest warning lights that I look for is a lack of joy. Because when that joy light starts to dim, I know that there's something wrong with our focus. And it may be anecdotal, it may be just me. Maybe all of you are going, what are you talking about? You don't have a clue. Oops, you're not in that boat at all. There's nothing, it's not you. But I would be willing to bet if I were a gambler, that we've all been there and probably are there in some sense today. 
rejoicing. So the command to rejoice in the Lord is always, and again, Paul would say, I say, rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. Do you know anxiousness is sinfulness? Now, here's the incredible thing. We don't get up one day and go, I'm just going to be anxious. <gasps> we might decide what pair of socks to wear or which pair of boots to put on or which way to comb our hair, but we don't decide to be anxious, or do we? It's just there. But, beloved, we do choose to continue to look at it. When the scripture says, the Lord is at hand. What are we looking at? Everything, all the spiders on the floor, all the floods outside, all the hurricanes in the, in the coast, the thunderstorms. Did y'all get that tornado warning thing? <laughs> that scared the men. And the second one was a false alarm. I'm like, don't do this to me. This is not okay. I'm going, there's not even a lot of birds are tweeting. I'm like, there's no tornado. That's anxiousness. But anxiety is when we focus on these things that we can't resolve, focus on the powerlessness of our lives, on things that are outside our control, but nothing is outside the control of our Savior. Nothing is outside the control of our sovereign Creator. He is in charge of it all, and even in the midst of some incredible anxieties, He is at work on purpose to show Himself faithful and to bring us to a place of rejoicing. What does Paul, Paul prescribe for the people of Philippi? He says, do not be anxious. The Lord is at hand, but pray. Not just for yourself, but for others. Supplicate. Pray for others. And do so with thanksgiving. And tell the Lord what you need. Well, I think some of the greatest places of Deceit is when we pray. Let me say this and make it clear. I think we lie more when we pray than we realize. Because we don't want to say exactly what we feel. We formalize some expression in our hearts or even with our mouths for those of us who pray out loud. We formalize some way in which we approach the Lord in our requests as if he doesn't know. It's like, a, you know, when, when your teenagers are running late and they call you and say, I'm almost home, but they're just leaving. You know, and you're not dumb. You've got their little app on there. You see where they are. Okay, be safe. And they get here. Yeah, it was a lot of traffic. 11 o'clock at night and Daisy. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Sure there was. Bambi and all his brothers have to pass over. We see. The Lord sees us. Just like we see our children, we see right through it. We don't have to pretend with God. We can be open with God. Years and years ago, long time ago, before my son was even born, I had a, a mentor in the faith that told me that David was wrong 
and got it all wrong because he was a whiner. He wasn't a man. He should have stood up and stopped whining, complaining, and fussing, and scared of everything. And I'm like, I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't like that David's a whiner. And then as I grew up and began to think, that would pop into my mind every now and then when I would read the Psalms. And then I realized he was right. But that was God's intention. That David would be a whiny pot, scared of everything. Oh, everybody's out to get me. Where we could see the greatness of God's power at work. David wasn't a great king. He wasn't a great servant. He was a lying, adulterating murderer. <laughs> and God says, man, after my own heart. Not in who David was, but in who God is. And the anxiety of all those consequences. We'll talk about that too. But we need to make our requests known to God. Why? Because we're at peace with Him. I had people come to me once after a sermon where I called God Dad. And they said, that just doesn't sit well with my soul, my heart, my ears. You know, you said, our dad. You need to go in there and say, hey, pops, that's just irreverent. But isn't that what the word Abba means? It's exactly what it means. It's an intimate, informal, familial term that the Hebrew people called God pops. Papa. I've had a papa in my life, my great-grandfather. And I didn't have to go in there and call him Mr. Adams. We called him Papa. And he'd make some crazy noise with his hands and give us candy out of his pocket. Always butterscotch. Never failed. And this man walks around with candy. That's amazing. You know, when you're a kid, it's candy out of his pockets. Papa. Well, I just don't settle. I said, well, do we not see it in the Scripture? But we have become so ingrained, and rightly so, that God is above all things. We ought to know that we have no right to approach Him in this way. We have no right to bust into the courtrooms of glory and say, hey, Pops. It's like when Grace, when she was like two years old, Come running down the side aisle of a large church when I was preaching one day and just came right on up on the stage. And everybody's laughing and I just picked her up and kept preaching. Just held her. A few minutes later, you know, Robin comes in <laughs> and gets her. Somebody went and said, hey, your, your child's on the stage. It was no big deal. It didn't stop anything. It didn't hurt my feelings. And if anybody had a problem with it, oops, this is my daughter. Don't you dare say she disrupted service. She added to the flavor. If you don't like it, I'll hold both children next week. It's not, in, it's not formalism. This isn't formal, though it's technically clinical in my, in my heart. You know, It's clinical. Somebody's got to get through with this and get down here and get together, you know? But it's just the way we do it. This is, our relationship with the Father is formally Intimate. Through the person of Jesus Christ, who is our peace. He is our Passover. He is our good report. He is the one who satisfied the wrath of God the Father for us. It is finished. So we do have 
the right and the privilege and the authority by the love of God for us to walk into wherever he is and say, hey, hey, daddy. Regardless of what he's doing. And I don't know why that the truth of the peace of God and the good report of Christ has to be the antithesis of him in his essence and glory and sovereignty and justice. Because that does make us shudder, doesn't it? But the, Paul writes to the Hebrew people and he says, you have not come to the tempest. You have not come to what? You've not come to the place where the fire and the clouds and the thunder and the rolling and the earthquake. You have not come to the instruction that says if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You have not come there, but you have come to Christ, the mediator of a new and better and effectual covenant. You have come to the blood of the Lamb of God who was slain. And so we come in washed by the sacrifice of Christ who atoned for us, who brought us near to God, and we have been taken out of darkness and washed in the blood of Jesus, drenched in His righteousness, clothed in His goodness, and set before the presence of God our Father who loves us and cares about whether the hair on our head hits the ground as much as He does about the sun coming up every day. Take your request to God. And beloved, by that teaching, we are never alone. We are never forsaken. Christ the Son was forsaken that we would never be forsaken. The gospel is not a good opportunity. It is a good report of a finished work that cannot be undone. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the light was good, and it was finished. And the whole creation account is to show God is the only one who can make Everything from nothing. And the only one who can separate it according to His will and to His purpose from light and darkness. And that even in the darkness, there is a light that rules. And we know who He is and His name is Jesus. So in our anxiety, our anxiety is darkness. Our fear is darkness. Our relationships is, can often be darkness. Our circumstances can be darkness. Christ is the light of, our, of the rule. He rules over this darkness. And beloved, I, I, I thought when all my children were younger that it was like, oh, goodness, then teenagers, oh, wow, and now adults. And it's going, I'm just trading one set of fears for another. And now I can't shake them and put them in timeout. <laughs> Duct tape. <laughs> you can't do that's kidnapping. I mean, you know. Can't tell them what to do anymore. I can offer, you know. This might work. Now, nah, stupid. Okay. Now, they don't talk to me that way, but you know, that's what they're thinking. <laughs> Dad's so dumb. Until something tears up, then I'm a genius. Can you fix this? Nope, I'm dumb. Fear is the root of no peace, beloved. Paul says to pray and to tell God what we need. And to rest in the knowledge of the finished work of Jesus Christ who atoned for our sins. And then he says, and the peace of God. What peace? Jesus says in John 15, I think. Or 14, 15. Those two chapters. Conversation. My peace I leave with you. Not peace that the world knows. My peace that the world cannot know. I leave with you. And where were they? They were just given the reality that Jesus was leaving. 
<laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to leave. Don't leave. Don't. What are we going to do now? Fear, anxiety. Oh, no. Hopelessness. Stress. What are we going to do? We've given our whole lives up. Our whole world is upside down. And you're leaving? <laughs> and Jesus says, but I'm leaving my peace. They couldn't get that. They had to learn that. They had to be taught by the Spirit of God. And then they wrote about it. And Paul does a great job of telling the church of Philippi about what this peace is. He's like, you know what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What does that mean? That means you can't put your finger on it. That means you can't outline it. You can't prescribe it. You can say, oh, this is what you need to do. You know, those guys. What you need to do is X, Y, Z. Well, huh, too bad. There is no, this is what you need to do. Paul has said, rejoice, be reasonable, pray, ask God your Father for everything that you need, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. What does it do? It guards your hearts and minds, how? In Christ Jesus. So there's the focus. See, there's the focus. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ, the mind that we've been given, which is Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Though He is and always has been God, even in the incarnation, He did not take His essence and status as the highest of all things, something to be made much of in the world because that's not why he came, yet he became obedient as a slave unto death on a cross, innocent, yet he took a criminal's death. Why? Because that's what he came to do, to make peace through his death. He made peace. So it surpasses all understanding. You have this mind. You have this mind. We have this mind. It's in Christ Jesus. So where is the discipline then to keep us in the right state of mind? Is to focus and learn and to guard our hearts and minds by not diving into the world and its worries, but digesting the truth of who Christ is as often as we can, that the Spirit of God may give us the peace of God that is beyond understanding if I could logically express it in a way of propositions to be adhered to or applications to be followed then it wouldn't be the peace of God it would be the peace of James or the peace of you or the peace of man or the peace of the church or the peace of the bishops or the peace of the hierarchy or the peace of the denomination or the peace of the uh, 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 of Christianity but it's not it's Christ he is our peace and he guards our hearts and our minds. And then the final instructions that Paul gives there to the Philippians in, in Philippians 4 is he says, then, therefore, finally, that's what he goes, finally, brothers, whatever is. And he starts to give a list of adjectives about things that are. Whatever is. And this is the list he gives. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. Worthy of praise. See that? Now what do you know that fits into all those categories? Who do you know that fits in all those categories? Jesus alone, right? The person of God in the flesh. 
the one, as we've already said today, who makes God known in all of his fullness. That's the glory. We have seen the glory of God. We've known him for all that he is. And we do not need to know anything else about him. We just need to continually focus on these things that we have been taught, that we may understand them deeply, and most importantly, rejoice and worship in him. Not in the things that he is, but in who he is. There's a big disconnect. And I won't get into that today. We'll get into that when we get through with the peace portion. So if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. There's the discipline. Think about these things. Beloved, I used to have a discipline where I wrote things down all day long, little cards, stuff like that. I transfer those things, and on Sunday afternoon, I'd do a brain dump on several pieces of paper, handwritten, and then I would divide that list of things, everything on my mind, whether it be, oh, I've got to take out the trash. If it was on my mind, i put it down. And then I'm going to divide those things into tasks that I could do, ridiculous things I should not even think about. And I threw that list in the trash. I literally wrote it down and threw it in the trash. And then I would make sure that the list of things that I could accomplish were things that I needed to accomplish. And if I needed to accomplish them, I would schedule them. And if I didn't need to accomplish them, I threw them away too. Things outside of my control, I threw in the trash. And the trash can, in that sense, being I just let the Lord handle it. And when I thought about those things, there was something, something interesting about that physical activity every week that helped me f- have a psychological picture of the fact that that's not in my de- on my desk anymore. It's not my responsibility. But in March of 2020, I stopped doing that. <laughs> you know what? That little discipline for me kept me in the Word and kept me focused on who Christ was. And helped me stay focused on praying for others and teaching others and loving others and serving others rather than being worried about what was going on with me. That's the mind of Christ. He was God, but he served others in his death. That's the mind of Christ with Paul. What does he say to the Philippians? What you've learned from me, what you've received from me, and what you've heard from me, and what you've seen me do in my life Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's a simple prescription. It's a simple application. It's very practical, you see. In the field of study, we would call this applied theology, which is the business of the elder. We know this. This is true. Let's rejoice. Let's worship. This is good. We are all about proclaiming Christ, but together... We cannot just sit here for the next 168 hours and proclaim Christ together. It would be great if we had somebody serving us food and a couple of more toilets. But we have life to do. We have life. We have needs to meet. We have things we have to accomplish tomorrow. It's going to rain this afternoon, tonight. I have things I need to do today to prepare for the rain, things I have to get out of the weather, simple things like that. If your clothes are dirty, you have to go home and wash a few things if you need those clothes for tomorrow. There are practical things in living as God's people, and the centerpiece of that living is the cross of Christ that surpasses all understanding when it comes to our peace in the midst of our daily doing. And more importantly, that we do all these things to the name and the glory of Christ as we're considering one another rather than our own selves. And a lot of times, as we'll see, we'll get some instruction in the next few months. 
The reason we are not at peace is because we are so introspective. We are looking inside so much about what we're dealing with, and it's not wrong, but schedule it. And more importantly, ask a confident friend, brother, sister in the faith to pray for you over it. And then let it go and let the Lord know and let your brothers and sisters pray and then sometimes also meet your needs. Practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. The opposite of that is to stew and to worry and to fret and to be at odds. My beloved God has made peace. Peter says it this way. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he would bring us to God. Atonement. How did he do that? Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear again. Another time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Hebrews 9. And Paul would tell the Roman church in Romans 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Beloved, Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has died and Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. The work has been finished. Jesus teaches in John 15 about the vine and abiding in him. Hatred of the world and all these things. But beloved, in the end of the day, Jesus has said we can be of good cheer. That we have peace with God the Father because of Him. Now that doesn't eliminate our problems. But it doesn't allow our problems to rob us of our joy. And I believe that each of us, and as a church, and as a culture, the body of Christ, the true body of Christ in our culture... We have lost sight of this prescription and the Word of God is going to bring us back to these practices. The Word of God is going to bring us back to this place of peace. To understand that the Father has loved Christ and Christ has loved us and we are at peace. We are at peace. And so, beloved, be encouraged to know that you are at peace with God. Because of the work of Christ. And share that good report. As often as you're able. With those who do not see it. Or do not know it. And with we who know it. And see it. Who need to be reminded of it. Every moment of every day. Remind one another of the gospel of grace. Which is the peace of our soul. Let's pray. We thank you Father. For the teaching of your word Lord. That you would use sinful lips. And sinful minds. To teach your word. But Father that you have. You call us friends. 
You call us children adopted into your family to share your righteousness, to share your name. And it does not defame you because you have satisfied your wrath in Jesus Christ. Father, help us not to bog down in the theologies of these things, but Father, to see the theologies as the truth that you've revealed to us that we might worship and live as your people. And Lord, you know more than I do about the things that I am fearful of and struggle with and the practices and the disciplines that have often taken precedence over what is good and true and lovely and wholesome, worthy of praise. So, Father, teach us all how to think on these things, to think on those things which are good, and to take not only out of our minds things that are not fruitful or healthy or eternal, but, Lord, take them out of our mouths and our actions. Help us to remove these things from our eyes and ears and to encourage one another to do the same, not as a way of gaining favor, but, Father, as a way of truly rejoicing and thanking you for your peace. And we thank you, Lord, that even when we fail, you are faithful and that we will not be lost and that we will not fall away. And even when we feel like we are not even yours, Lord, your Spirit will remind us that we are. And you have brought us to life through the death of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. And you have clothed us not with figs and things made by our own hands. And Lord, you have clothed us not by things that you have made that we have put on. But you have clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ against our very will to bring us to the knowledge of that truth. To bring us close to you without fail. You will have your way. And so, Lord, grow us in your sovereignty, in your power, and for your purposes. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.